Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Beginners to stage, beginners to stage. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Backstage at Cry Havoc episode. I am your host, Laurie Ann Davis, she, her, and today we're going to be talking to the writers, or some of the writers, two of the writers of Cry Havoc, ask questions later. They are David K. Barnes and Sarah Shackett. And please, can I ask you to introduce yourselves with your pronouns and just tell us a little bit about yourself and the involvement in the show. David, please go first. Hello, I'm David. I'm a he, him, and and I'm the creator of of, of Cry Havoc. And I asked Sarah to write a script for me, and she did. And that's worked out remarkably well. Hello, I am Sarah Shackett. She, her. I do what David tells me to do, which is mostly write scripts. That's excellent news. So I think maybe a good place to start... Let's orient ourselves within the story and which episodes are yours, Sarah. So you wrote The Producers and Rome Open City. So those are episodes 13 and 14 of Cry Havoc, Ask Questions Later. They have, if all's gone to plan with the schedule, just released when this episode's coming out to patrons. Outstanding. <laughs> Do you want to summarise what happened? Or I have written a tiny little summary. Has it been too long since you wrote them? <laughs> I can do quick summaries. 
That might be comical because it has been a minute since I looked at the scripts. So the producers is when Octavia finally gets to put on a play and it goes exactly to plan and nothing goes wrong and everything is fine. You've remembered that perfectly, yes. Yeah. 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 And then Rome Open City is also another Octavia-heavy episode when she and Charmian get to spend a day wandering around Rome and having kind of a date, which is exciting. Which also goes perfectly. Incredibly well. Yeah. It's two episodes of people having a great time. Yeah. And nothing going wrong at all. What I love so much about this series is how there's no conflict. Yeah. We stamp that out very early on. This is about pure down-the-line administration going properly, Mm -hmm. people respecting each other, getting on with each other. It's 20 episodes of pure harmony. And uh, that's what the public wants. That actually sounds really calming. And I feel like I I would listen to that for at least a couple of episodes. (laughs) (laughs) The ASMR version of the show. Oh, yes. Oh, something that we missed out there that I think is very important is that Lepidus plays the monster in uh, episode 13. That's something I thought was important enough to put in my notes. Incredibly important. Thank you. (laughs) Sarah, what's your experience writing in a writer's room? Oh, gosh. Is this the first time you've done it or have you done it quite a lot? Not the first time because I think Cry Havoc, can't imagine why, was organized very similar to Wooden Overcoat season four where I was brought in and there was an outline that already existed and kind of an idea for what needed to happen in those particular episodes. But kind of how we got there was the work that, in this case, myself, the wonderful Robert Ballantyne and and David and, and Amani all sort of got together on a Zoom and talked about a block of four episodes and, and kind of what needed to happen in that discrete chunk of the story. And I mean... Writing in a room is just a joy because you're surrounded by smart people who say funny things. And occasionally you contribute too, but it's, it's great. So it was not my first time, but a wonderful, wonderful experience with a, a very talented room. I've really enjoyed Sarah's work on All 359. I've worked with her on uh, series Unseen, of course, on Wooden Overcoats. And I just like, Sarah does very, very good dialogue. She's very good to, to plot things with and discuss things. And uh, we just sort of sit down and talk about a story and go into an excruciating detail. And she just goes, yeah, all right. It's just a very good, easy, easy working relationship. And I've just, yeah, I've always loved Sarah's writing. And I also knew that Sarah already had a great interest in ancient Rome and the classics. That's right. So that's very helpful. That's very handy. He knew I was a nerd. Yeah. Good knowledge to have. Did you do your own research on sort of ancient Roman medical customs? Because I was looking through the research that Dr. Southern did for us and I can't find anything about medicine. I think you may have just done that yourself. Yeah, no, I went back to Pliny's Natural History which is uh, a wild read, uh, very, very dense. The man loved cabbage. I don't really know what to say. (laughs) It's it's one of those things of like, you have to to skim it for details because if I like tried to really get in there and get a firm grasp of how Romans thought about medicine, that's a semester course worth of work that I did not do. Yeah, absolutely. But definitely went Wikipedia diving and, and went to a couple primary sources for things to steal from, for sure. So those the sources are, because they're still like, you know, beginnings of recorded history and the beginnings of trying to, like, you know, write encyclopedias that nobody's really done it before. So it's just people grabbing what they've seen and observed and all the knowledge and just writing it down. And most of the time there's very little veracity to it. It's just, I've heard that this works. Yeah. Write it down. We'll, we'll try it. I've not read plenty. I've, I've read 
I've read Herodotus of the ancient oh, Greeks. The king. Who is the very first historian, certainly at least in the West, the first of ancient Greek who wrote a history of things, which is essentially, you know, he did an entire sort of book on Egypt, which is just going to Egypt and asking the locals, can you give me interesting stuff? And they give him stories about giant ants in the desert that find gold for people. And he goes, yeah, all right, that sounds plausible, just writes it down. Because <laughs> yeah. this is how history works. And this is how some medicine works. It's still... A great deal of it's about observation, it's about belief in the gods, it's about sort of tempers and things. And it's just something it's really fun to put in, especially if you're trying to undermine characters who are meant to be incredibly powerful. The best thing you could do is make them ill, give them a cold or give them a fever, give them something that brings them down. Because everyone, no matter how powerful they are, ultimately is sort of subservient to their doctor. And it's the one person who can come in and tell them what to do. And so that's fun. That's the sort of comedy subplot, an episode that's going to a lot of other themes about sort of romance, sexuality, and class divide as well. Yes. It's a comedy show, but there's serious things in it too. The medicine being such straight, pure, undiluted comedy lets you balance with the more serious stuff that happens in the other plot line yeah. and lets you get away with it. If you're going to sort of deal with potentially unreachable chasms of socioeconomic experience, then for God's sake in the middle have a couple <laughs> people who don't like each other be quarantined together have an onion suppository <laughs> yes yeah. suppositories all the way i'd like to do because this was still you know within the throes of covid lockdown said i want a quarantine episode <laughs> <laughs> guys and mark are stuck together i mean it's the best two people in a room who don't like each other who have to stay in the room and they're talking it's uh, yeah come on so am i to understand then that the things that dr demetrius prescribes were actual things that have been written down as tried and tested remedies in ancient rome i don't know about tried and tested <laughs> i think as as david was saying especially with pliny he's just writing down kind of hearsay and also his own experience and more recommendations than you think involve parts of dragons so like <laughs> I, I would find that very hard to replicate its veracity but all of the medical recommendations were stuff that I found in the sources I didn't even try to make anything up because nothing that I thought about would be as bonkers wow. as the actual Roman ideas about the human body and how to make it better I just can't get past the onion suppository and just thinking please please tell me a lot of layers were taken off <laughs> I mean, logistically, you think, right? <laughs> we don't have to go into it <laughs> graphically, but oh, sweet Lord. <laughs> it's really interesting thinking about how we're different from the Romans, just sort of how, for better and for worse, more connected they are with like the stuff in nature. A lot of our experience of medicine is, you know, you take a pill or there's a cough syrup. Like they are actually having to make this from like the stuff they find in their garden or in some cases the spiders they find in their garden <laughs> and are just making it up as they go. Pretty grim, you know? Was your interest in Rome, was it like academic? Had you studied it or was it just like, this is a period of time that fascinates you so you just happen to know a lot about it? I did in college study it a little bit. I was a classics major in a addition to studying film and was very bad at Latin and was mostly interested in the end of the Roman Empire and how it all fell apart. Mm. Where I studied was kind of on the border of the Roman Empire in the early medieval period. But I think Rome is fascinating. I've always been interested in it. And I would say that I have like a good, solid hobbyist understanding and 
the late Republican period is one that we have such a vivid understanding of, mostly because Cicero's a gossip. <laughs> Not the first time he's come up in these episodes. Yeah. What a narc. Uh, if you did um, the combo of you know, classics and uh, film, did you end up spending a bit of time at uh, college watching all the old classic uh, sword and sandal movies? Oh, yeah. A okay. lot of peplum. A lot of Italian peplum films. And a lot of, like, I don't want to say bad, but <clears throat> a, a lot of... Uh, Films and, and TV shows that were eager to cash in on Gladiator uh, is how I'll put that. Yes. <laughs> HBO's Rome is brilliant, though. We'll hear no slander against it. Will you not? There should be more penises on the doors for all of the shops. That's the only thing that's inaccurate, is that there were penises everywhere. <laughs> so I want to take us back to kind of related to the lack of penises being everywhere. <laughs> she says this once an episode. My no- Incredible segue. <laughs> Thank you. My knowledge of ancient Rome is being developed through this series, basically. Mm -hmm. The image I have of it in my head is that it is very, like, free love, like, sex isn't a taboo, and that is definitely something that this series leans into, I'd say. How accurate is that? And specifically around sexuality in Mm. the sense of would a woman with a woman have been accepted, do we think? Would it have been different for two women, two men? What do you know about that? I think academics are still sort of some logheads as to, as to whether sort of queer relationships is something which was going on, acceptable, socially acceptable, whatever. And yeah. even to the extent that we can call them queer relationships, because Roman's yeah. understanding of their own sexuality is wildly different from ours. Yes, it, I've read they don't really have words for sort of sexualities and, and etc. They don't. They have words to describe different sort of sexual positions and without going to too much detail on what might be a PG certificate podcast, uh, the, uh, the, the position that one assumes during these activities puts you into a certain bracket in, 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 in how you're viewed. They're status associated, yeah. Yes, that, yes. Oh, interesting. It's one of those sorts of things where gay sex and gay relationships were almost certainly going on quite a bit, but you, they would not be something you discuss publicly, but you sort of know they were happening. Right. And if you're the sort of the dominant partner in such a, an arrangement, then... You're fine, but it's if you if you deign to be the junior partner in such a relationship, then you are uh, viewed very badly and, made, and jokes made about you. So it's a very hypocritical sort of standpoint. Am I misinterpreting that? Is that that sounds like it could be specific to men? That would be men. Yes, because the writers yeah. did not care about women, and so they didn't write down a lot. Which yeah. gets to Octavia and Charmian is that we just don't have a lot in the sources about what we would consider lesbian relationships. And the writers seem very confused by them when they are mentioned. Yes, we should definitely state that when we say the writers, I mean the ancient writers as opposed to the other writers on this series. Yes. Who <laughs> may be confused, I don't know. But I think that's it's true Like in ancient Greek texts. We, we know of, like, of the poetry of Sappho, but even that is of small fragments here and there. For, for ancient Roman women, I think that the one suspects that it, it's viewed with a sort of well, that shouldn't be happening, but it's okay if it does because it barely matters they're only women, which is the view that a lot of the sort of Roman men would have likely had. For the purpose of this series, you sort of have to make a decision as to, yes, it, to, to what extent is, it, how is sexuality viewed here? For this show, I thought quite early on, I wanted to, to be honest, make the executive decision that uh, queer relationships were, probably were, are going on and nobody really cares much about it because it makes it for uh, a much sort of, well, sort of a, a certainly happier show in, in some ways but it's also how Wooden Overcoats to some extent went where um, I, I, my sort of view there was most characters are probably bisexual unless said otherwise and that sex was probably going on all over the place off, off camera off whatever and um, but 
we don't necessarily focus on it. Here, I think there are references to sort of various characters being bisexual. Cleopatra uh, certainly is. I think Mark Antony stated in the, the episode. And so when Charmian and Octavia are together, the, the reason why they have to stay secret is not because they're both women in a romantic relationship. It's purely because they are on opposite teams in this big political sort of war going on of, between Egypt and Rome. They're not allowed to sort of know each other because of all the politics and all the other things going on. There might even be something of a class issue there as well, of you know, sort of the rich woman and the sort of servant character. But certainly the fact that they're, they're both women. In episode one of the series, there was reference to Octavia having spent the night with a serving girl and is annoyed about it but not because it's it's a lesbian sexual encounter it's it's either because he is just a bit sniffy about people having sex at all or it's because his sister is sleeping with a, with a servant and that's the issue but I, I wanted to make it quite certain early on in episode one that gay relationships or lesbian relationships or any sort of queer relationship in this series was permissible and you know people wouldn't uh, criticize you for it there'll be plenty of other reasons to be criticized in this series uh, but that won't be one of them because it, it opened up the storytelling and I think it just... Yeah, I, it's one of the ways in which I sort of thought we could try to make this Roman world feel a bit closer to our own. Um, this is a you know, fiction series. This is a series set in ancient Rome as opposed to a series yes. about ancient Rome. And that's how you have to approach it because a lot of what we know about Roman sexuality, if you consider them and, and try to take them on their face, like it, it, it brings up a lot of stuff that we now would have a, a moral quandaries with uh, in terms of, you know, we're, we're actually problematizing sexual relationships between people of different classes, whereas in actual fact, you know, upper class elite Romans had enslaved people and, and had sexual relationships with people of lower classes, and that was fine, and there were no protections for those people, which is not great. So it's, it's really freeing as a writer to sort of think about people with a relationship to sex that is closer to our own, but in this sort of alien setting where queer relationships are just not problematic on the face of them being queer relationships. And we can then explore, and, you know, I ho hopefully episode 14 does explore, you know, all of the roadblocks that might exist for Octavia and Charmian, but the fact that they are both women is not one of them. It's one of those things where, you know, we all have certain views of ancient Rome, most it's coming from the films and TV series, eh, that there's sex going on everywhere, but also I think we'd naturally seem, oh, there was probably a lot of queer relationships going on, some sex and romance, it probably was, it's ancient world, it's ancient Italy and ancient Greece, it probably was going on, and you can kind of lean into that and go, you know, we are going to take that and make that thing, because it's also, from a sort of, you know, dramatist point of view, we are meant to enjoy, say, for instance, Mark Antony, we are meant to enjoy Gaius as, as sort of protagonists, even if we don't yeah. subscribe to some of their actions, especially as the series goes on. You know, we, 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 we don't aspire to be these people, but we do need to kind of enjoy being in their presence. If Gaius was verently homophobic, we're not going to be on board of that character. Yeah. We, we will not want that character in our series. Like, they're patriarchal, but in the way that our society is not the sort of incredibly strict and, and hyperactive form of patriarchy that Roman men practiced, because that would be a lot. Yes, it's an incredibly patriarchal society. And even in our series, though, all the positions of power occupied by men in, in, in politics, which is also another reason why sort of they find Cleopatra quite a, a startling mm -hmm. figure to be working as of a woman in power. Again, references, you know, derogatory references to women for being women are, I think, maybe kept to a fair minimum in this. Again, Gaius, he's, 
criticism of Octavia running a theatre company isn't, oh, you're a woman trying to write and put on plays of a theatre. It's, you're my sister, and it looks incredibly bad for me as a politician that my sister's involved in theatre and doing all this. And so I really enjoy all those scenes of Octavia and Charmian in episode 14 and 13, indeed, where they're having a furtive meeting in a cuddle in a cupboard. That's right. He's sort of all loved up and, oh, we're together now. We can run around and be a bit naughty, etc. But again, it's because it's the same way that a couple of people in a theatre company would be feeling a bit naughty. It's not, oh, look, we're two women and we're lesbians. and It's, oh, we've got a secret and nobody else knows. And that's something that an audience can really buy into and have fun with. And I think it's sort of the fine line of making this feel like quite a sort of accessible playground while still feeling a bit like ancient Rome. And I think you do end up leaning into the films um though i think one sort of i think notable thing that is often done in the films and tv series which i hope i don't think we do at all is um there was a habit of the rush to kind of depict ancient rome as this sort of hedonistic awful sort of society that usually is defeated by christianity you'll often have villains who are usually depicted or sort of coded as being gay like mm. a, yes things like 1950s you've got the robe with the villain is caligula um, caligula is often depicted as being queer coded usually against a very sort of you know straight down the line square jawed american roman <laughs> Deviant sexuality, as they would sort of put it, is a way of coding someone as a villain, which is fortunately very much falling out of favour. Where in an ancient Roman film, if somebody seems a bit gay, oh, they're probably a villain. Whereas I mean, that goes back to the Roman sources too. Suetonius thought all of the bad emperors were gay. It is one of those things. Yeah, in in ancient biography, an easy way of Mm -hmm. trying to lambast somebody or say that they were a bad Roman or a bad politician is you say, oh, and they were having sex with lots of boys, or they were doing this, or they were very effeminate, or Etc. And some of these very negative assessments of particular figures have even stayed in with modern scholars. There's the famous um, Emperor Elagabalus, yes. um, much, much later in the Severan dynasty, a, a figure I'd love to write about at some stage because it was absolutely fascinating. It was essentially a, a teenager who was uh, made emperor, certainly probably not very well suited to it, but was a kind of a, a priest of a, of a foreign god and was, you know, just uh, distinctly sort of from sources quite a sort of a feminine individual. Some sources or some sort of modern assessments would say they might have even been transgender. And the sources on the whole say, oh, look at this awful person because all these reasons. And even now, some modern biographies you'll get in, in your library will say the worst Roman emperor of all. Um, bec- and it's very difficult to find reasons as to why they would be the worst emperor of all it's just, oh, they seemed a bit excessive. And a bit excessive is coded as a bit queer. And it's a very, oh, it's a very sort of negative attitude. It's, it's, it, that runs straight from those ancient sources to now. So to be able to do a series where you go, right, fuck all that. Yeah. No, <laughs> let's have openly queer characters in our series and they're celebrated and they're great and we can love them. Fantastic. Let's crack on and find various other things to do because there's always an element in ancient sort of texts and even sort of modern culture and those films which you just go let's I wish that wasn't there and then I'm doing my own one f*** it I don't want that sorry I'm not allowed to swear <laughs> that's alright I've already decided we're beeping the first one it was necessary yeah um, but you know that, that's the thing I go I don't want any of that in my show this is my version of Rome and I talk to all the writers and I go yeah I agree and go brilliant let's have fun and there are lots of other reasons to sort of delve into and the, and the darkness of this society which yes. is definitely there but a darkness which is still prevalent in our society now even sort of going forward we 
just want people to sort of have fun when doing this show as much as listening to it. Yeah. And I mean, the drama is only interesting when, you know, transposing characters into a historical setting reflects something back about ourselves and our own lives, yes. right? Like, there is a point at which thinking about the history becomes counterproductive to the project that we're embarked on. And it's incredibly useful to be steeped in sources and, and sort of have an understanding of the context in which you are writing about. But it's also, there's a per- certain point where you have to turn that part of your brain off. And then it's incredibly freeing to go, okay, I have this wonderful stage setting for these characters. Let's watch them run around in closets in the back of this temple because they're madly in love. What I particularly love in Sarah's episode 14 is that I think the note is I, I wanted them to have a, a good day together but for some cracks in the relationship to show from their opposite perspectives and different sort of views on on life and uh, class and of course uh, the fact that Charmin is still working for Cleopatra and that's in there and that I think is very exciting and I think it makes it gives an extra freshness to their relationship and I really loved uh, those scenes. Me too and I think what shines through it and this sounds like it should be obvious but they obviously like each other. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean like there are issues and differences but they obviously like each other and that's really nice to see because I know like in a lot of rom-coms you think why are you you don't like each other what's happening yeah but it was an absolute joy to write those scenes because i you know in thinking about this version of octavia and this version of charmian they are incredibly complementary they could conquer the world together and you know the tragedy is that one of them was born in rome and one of them was born in egypt and so having a relationship is complicated and it's wonderful to explore the ways in which it is but also, you know, what makes it a comedy and what makes it safe until potentially it isn't is that they do like each other and that they do get on and, and they are good for each other. Mm. Yeah, it's one of the hypocrisies that we kind of do keep in this series is that, you know, somebody like you know, Julius Caesar would have had a relationship with Cleopatra. And so the idea of, of heads of state of different nations, you know, sort of enjoying each other's company, shall we say, is kind of, oh, that's just an expected thing. But if it was somebody else of a high status with somebody of lower class, a class would have been the, the big thing. The fact that Octavia is a, a elite woman and she would have been carrying on with what essentially is a, a servant, let alone a, a Cleopatra's sort of right-hand spy, that is one of the things that would have been very much seen against it. That's what, that, that would be the reason why other male characters in this would sort of take a very dim view. Um, and that is a, very much an hypocrisy within sort of the Roman state class generally. The, the hypocrisy surrounding class is something which I really like exploring and writing generally. That's one of the areas I really did want to look at throughout this series. If this is a kind of reflection of modern society, it's that people at the top of society are seemingly allowed to get away with a lot of things uh, that they then censure other people for who sort of lo- in lower classes. And that has gone on for thousands of years and will sadly go on probably for another few thousand. No, it was like weirdly cathartic to write, this is a term in the States, but to write Octavia as kind of like a limousine liberal. <laughs> champagne socialist? Yeah, champagne socialist <laughs> is a similar... Champagne socialist, there you go. And explore the ways in which class kind of blinkers or is in the background until it isn't yeah yeah especially for someone of octavia's status that was such a joy to do and to write so thank you for giving me those episodes again well it was nice to do the sort of fun contrast of the sort of slightly slower paced character focused one after the oh and could you also write a farce could you could you please do <laughs> with like, a montage yeah, yeah could, which could, i loved could you do a farce <laughs> episode just about putting on a play and it goes wrong and they went yeah <laughs> Sure, that's fine. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to have to wrap us there, which I'm so sad about. 
This was fantastic and really interesting. Thank you for expanding my knowledge even further on Rome. I look forward to being an expert by the end of these. Excellent. And Sarah, would you like to plug anything? I mean, uh, sure. I'm not on Twitter anymore, so don't go there. It's a bad place. <laughs> but uh, you can listen to other things that I've written, if you like. These episodes that I wrote of Cry Havoc, I wrote on Wolf 359, a fabulous series called Unseen that David wrote an episode of that's very funny. And so I've written stuff. You can find me. My name's weird. Just Google me. On that, thank you everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed and I'll see you on the next one. I'm not sure what it is off the top of my head, but would you like to say goodbye, Sarah and David? Bye-bye. Thank you all so much. Bye. Backstage at Cry Havoc is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. It is directed by Armani Zardo, produced by Laurie Ann Davis, with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner. This episode was edited by Laurie Ann Davis and Catherine Vanella. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>